There was an article in there, and it was uh, about a new television show that NBC has just come out with this fall, starring a fellow named Carlson, uh, Carson Cressley, and it's called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And these are five homosexual men. And what was so grievous, what was so grievous was to read in the article of little boys asking for their autographs. Boy, I hope you've got a guard and governor on your television at your home. If you're letting your children watch these kinds of films, you know what the devil's doing? He's just breaking down the next generation further. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in the final chapter of the book of 2 Timothy, and we find here some of the last words of the Apostle Paul. Paul knew his time was short as he was scheduled to be executed, but he also knew that our time was short, that a time would soon come when God's word would be diluted so that we might be diluted. And so he encouraged his son in the faith, Timothy, as he encourages modern day pastors to stick with the truth, as difficult as it may be to preach. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he reminds us of the different ways Paul exhorted Timothy to preach the word. We are to preach the word revealingly. We are to preach it revealingly as we continue in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And if we're preaching it revealingly, there will be at least three dimensions to our preaching. It will involve reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Preaching is to be relevant. And indeed, it is relevant when these three dimensions are found in a man's preaching. Now, the first word here, reprove, is to point out behavior that basically is in violation of God's will and God's way. It has the idea of both convicting and convincing people of what God's standard is and how they're called to live by that standard. The second word is a stronger word, this word rebuke, and it means to place blame. As the word of God is open... As people hear what God says, blame quite often is put upon them from Holy Scripture. But people need to see something else. People need not simply be reproved and rebuked. They also need our encouragement. People need to see how, one, their sin can be forgiven. Two, how their lives can be strengthened, how they can be different. To quote an old rule of preachers, a preacher, a pastor, is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And so we can go to one of two extremes. If there's conviction, but no remedy, then basically we've just added to people's burdens. At the other end of the spectrum, if we try to encourage people who need to be rebuked and challenged in their sin, then basically we are assisting them to continue in that path and condoning their wrong choices. So when you preach, preach urgently, preach revealingly. Third, we are to preach the word patiently. Again, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and then he adds, with great patience. And so while we are to preach with a sense of urgency, longing for people to respond to the word of God, we must also preach patiently. The herald, as he preaches the word of God, will not always see the immediate results. As we share Christ, we need to wait. For the fruit to mature, sometimes you plant seeds, sometimes you harvest them, sometimes you come alongside and you water them and you nurture them, but you don't always see immediate fruit. 
Now, I've seen very often in meetings human pressure and human manipulation applied to the audience where they get, quote-unquote, decisions, but not conversions. He is warning him here that he is to preach the Word of God and he is to preach it patiently. The Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately allows a person to make a decision. Only he can open their eyes and only they can choose to respond to that opening. Now, the Scripture teaches we're to preach in season and out of season, but it also teaches that we will bear fruit in due season. Now, I see this in the church and I've seen it in my ministry over the years. There are times when people just continually and constantly seem to be coming to Christ. And then there will be a period of time when God just says, be patient. And then it will happen all over again, and it comes in cycles, in seasonal cycles. The same is often true with God's people, and I know it to be true in my own life, where all of a sudden God speaks in a profound way, and there's a key decision that catapults you in many ways to a new level of maturity in Christ. And then God's people just faithfully stay that course, and it happens again. In season and out of season, whether it's convenient or not, we wait upon the Lord because conversions and growth ultimately is a work of the Holy Spirit. So we preach patiently. So then finally, he says, we must preach the word doctrinally. Look again in verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, and then he adds, and instruction. Now, Paul is giving a proper balance that needs to be heated in our day because not only are we to preach the word, we are to teach the word, and the two are never separated in Scripture. A pastor is not simply to tell stories and give a lot of interesting illustrations or read a verse here and there and then forget it. No, true preaching carefully explains what the Bible says, what it means, and how it applies to our life. Now, there's a tendency in our day when we think of this word instruction, in the old King James, it's translated doctrine, that somehow doctrine or teaching or instruction is just dry and academic. Yet doctrine is alive. It is pulsating. It reveals who God is and what He is about. Doctrine is a picture of God's ways and God's wants and what God's people are called to be. It's not dry and dusty. It is life-changing. And we dare not preach anything else because God tells us that we are to preach with instruction. And if we don't, we end up just unfolding our own mind and giving people the wisdom of men instead of the Word of God. Now, one of the pastoral requirements for a man to be qualified to serve in the office of elder is he needs to be apt to teach. He needs to be sound in doctrine. And if he's not apt to teach and sound in doctrine, he shouldn't be a preacher. And so, Paul was one who basically did what he is now admonishing Timothy to do. If you remember, Timothy is in the city of Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and that city he spent more time than in any city in his entire life in ministry. And when he gathered together those Ephesian elders there at that beach at Miletus, he reminded them that for three years he declared uh, everything that was profitable, and he taught them publicly from house to house. He declared that he taught anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly from house to house, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. 
And so the mandate is very clear to Timothy. Timothy, I want you to preach the word with a sense of urgency, with a sense of revealing truth and behavior and what God has called us to do. You need to do it patiently and you need to do it doctrinally with great instruction. Okay, that's the mandate of the charge. In addition, I want you to notice this morning the motivation for the charge. Paul's not content to tell Timothy and give him just the essence of the charge. Now he wants to give him the basis for that charge. Having given him the responsibility in verses 1 through 2, now he gives him the reason in verses 3 and 4. And I want you to notice here three arguments from the contemporary scene in which Timothy finds himself and in which we find ourselves today. First, preach the word because men will not want to hear the truth. That's the first reason. Preach the word because men won't want to hear the truth. Verse 3 begins, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now you see that little word for? It's a little Greek word, gar, G-A-R, translated. It means because. He is giving us the reason. Preach the word because, here's the reason, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't want to hear the truth. Now, please note here, he's speaking here prophetically. The time will come. Now, certainly this had some application for Timothy's day because he lived in difficult days. But I believe Paul, among other things, was looking down the channel of human history. Even to our day, a time will come when men won't want to hear sound doctrine. And so, recognizing that things will ultimately go from bad to worse, he now uses a future tense to describe something that will happen. Now, he already warned Timothy in his first letter that in latter times, an equivalent of what we would call the last of the last days, that men would embrace doctrines of demons, that they would depart from the faith, from what we call the Bible. And of course, one of the reasons for such wavering is very often people are weak doctrinally. They don't know what's right. They don't know what God says. And so they are very easily swayed in the wrong direction. Now, doctrine is very important. God uses the word 45 times alone in the New Testament. And so anything that God says that many times, you better sit up and listen. Because when we talk about teaching, when we talk about uh, preaching doctrine, we're speaking of not something that's ancillary to the purposes of God, that is absolutely central and foundation to His purpose. Anything that God says that many times, we need to heed. By the way, do you ever meet these Christians? We say, oh yeah, doctrine. Doctrine is just something that divides. You know, I went to a conference years ago, thousands of people there, and the MC opened that conference, and he said, we're not here to teach doctrine because we know that doctrine divides. And I thought, what an ignorant statement. Yes, it does divide. It divides truth from error. It divides the sheep from the goats. It divides the saved from the lost. It divides right thinking from wrong thinking. As if to say, though, that if you preach doctrine, you're being divisive and somehow unloving to the body of Christ. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Such a statement is not informed either biblically or linguistically. Linguistically, the word teaching or the word doctrine just means teaching. That's what we're talking about. 
When we're talking about doctrine, we're talking about a teaching. And so biblically speaking, when you present a doctrine, you're simply saying what God says on a particular subject. And we should never have to apologize for Bible doctrine. We have a book called The Teachings of Immanuel Kant. That's another way of just saying Kant's doctrine. There's another book called The Thoughts of Charles Darwin. That's another way of just saying Darwin's doctrine. And as a Christian, we should never apologize for investigating the teaching of a book that was here long before Darwin, Darwin or the philosopher Kant was around. It will be here long, long, long after every other book is gone because God's word is forever settled in heaven. It's a book that was uniquely inspired by the God whom made Darwin and Kant. And so God's people are to preach the word. God wants us to be mature in our thinking because he wants us to be stable in our behavior. Now remember, the basis of what you believe is your doctrine. And everyone has some kind of doctrinal basis for everything they believe about life, whether it's how you function in your family whether it's how you're raising your children, how you manage your finances, what you think about God, salvation, heaven, or any other thing you can think of. Doctrine relates to every realm of life. Now, some people have not really thought their way through this, but understand everyone has a doctrine. Even the atheist has a doctrine. He has a belief system. His belief system is that God does not exist. And very often, he will say, as the basis of that belief, is you cannot prove that God exists. Of course, he's arguing against the dictates of his own heart because God ontologically has proved his existence through the creation around us. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature are clearly seen through what he has made. He has shouted from the heavens above, and he has shouted from conscience within. Your conscience either defends you or accuses you. You're either pleasing the one who created you or you're displeasing him. And so God only devotes one half of one verse in all the Bible to atheism. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In fact, he repeats it in two different Psalms for emphasis. So he has a belief system. It's a false belief system. He says there's no God. Even the agnostic has a belief system. He says, well, it's impossible to know whether or not God exists. And uh, they have, again, some authority for believing what they believe. Maybe they thought it up. Maybe a friend told them. Audrey and I uh, were in Vienna some time ago, and we met a young lady, and uh, God opened a conversation. We're turned to spiritual things, and she was 15 years old, and a very uh, sweet, young, uh, polite girl. And this little girl, who's quite intelligent, fluent in three languages, we said, well, what do you believe? She said, I'm an agnostic. I said, why are you an agnostic? She said, well, because um, my parents are agnostic, and they taught me to be agnostic. I said, well, have you ever read the Bible? Well, she said, yes. I read the Sermon on the Mount. She said, you know, it was the most beautiful words I've ever read in my life. And we talked to her about Jesus Christ, and she could see before we were finished that though she had embraced a certain train of thought, that it was a faulty foundation on which she had laid her thinking. So your foundation this morning is based on something. And the question we must ask as Christians is my doctrine, is my theology based on the word of God? Every man has a theology. The theology of the atheist is there is no God. The theology of the agnostic is I don't know if there's a God. The theology of the liberal is there's a God, but not the way God describes himself. He has formed God in his own image. You need to ask, is my basis correct? Is it founded in Holy Scripture? So Timothy, you need to understand 
Because a day is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine. They will prefer entertainment than the preaching of God's Word. In Timothy, while they may want to hear teaching, the kind of teaching they may hear is not good teaching. It's not sound. The Greek word means healthy teaching. Now, God knows that what germs are to the physical body, bad doctrine is to the spiritual body. And many pastors are giving in to the prevailing winds of our day. See, the culture wants something else. The culture is screaming for something else. And so there's a movement afoot in our nation that literally thousands of churches have embraced, several in our own community, that basically says Sunday morning is not designed for the people of God. We design the worship service for the unbeliever. We don't need to be too heavy, too technical. Certainly we don't need to exposit Scripture or we will turn them off. Listen, Timothy, you preach it whether they want to hear it or not. I told you before about my friend. He seems to constantly be on a diet. And he said, Carl, a good rule of thumb is this. If it tastes good, spit it out. Now, I preach from this book, and it may not always taste good to you. I've received letters from people who listen to me in other states, and I'm thinking of one in particular where the man said, you stepped all over my toes. No, I wasn't stepping on his toes. I don't even know the man. I wasn't preaching with him in mind. No, it was the Word of God that was stepping on his toes. But he went on to say, the more I listened, the more I had to agree with you, the more I knew you were right, because I knew that you were teaching from the Bible. Listen, you may not particularly like spiritual string beans or cauliflower or, or broccoli, but it's good for you. And God says that I'm going to feed it to you. And I recognize some will throw it up, but others will be nourished on it. And so, Timothy, as you consider the basis for this charge to preach... You need first to preach the Word of God because a time will come when men won't want to hear sound doctrine. Secondly, preach the Word because men will choose bad leaders. They'll choose bad leaders. Again, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Now, the lexicons indicate that this word tickled also translated itching, as a figure of speech for someone who's looking for spicy or interesting bits of information. You know, there are people who come to church on Sunday only to have their ears tickled. And when you say what they want you to say, especially you say it in a way that is pleasing to the ear, they'll love you for it. But this is in contrast to the sound doctrine that Timothy is to preach. By the way, the word sound in the original comes directly into our English language. We got our word hygiene from it. And so some people do not want spiritual hygiene. They just want to be made to feel good so they can do what they want you to do. And so there's a whole movement in our country that is telling people that as pastors, you shouldn't stand in the pulpit and tell people that they're sinful, fallen, under the wrath of God, facing judgment, because that will turn them off, that that's a preaching style of an old age, and you need not say it. And some of these churches that have embraced this new philosophy have glowing and growing statistics. But understand, a big church is not proof of God's hand upon it. It doesn't necessarily make it authentic. A preacher can have a large congregation, and the reason he has one is because he's tickling the ears of the people who come. Now, certainly there are big and successful churches because God wants people to be saved. And when the gospel is preached, people will be converted. And when the sheep are fed, the people will grow, and healthy sheep will reproduce. But understand that there are many big and so-called successful movements in our nation 
that are only giving people what they want to hear. Let me quote from one popular, well-known preacher in America. In fact, he appears on more television stations than any other single person in America. And in his letter to the editor at the Christianity Today, he said, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ. I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. You see what he's saying? He is saying, don't tell people that they're lost and sinful because it's destructive to their human personality. I guess it's going to somehow mess up their positive mental attitude. The same man goes on to say, my number one role is that I don't want to do anything that would turn somebody off so that they will not be open to listening to my invitation to accept Jesus Christ as their best friend. Listen, friend. He won't become your best friend until you see that you are a fallen, reprobate sinner who needs to be rescued from the wrath that your sin deserves. He cannot be your best friend until you are born from above. And so Paul says, wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own lusts. Now underscore that they congregations, he's speaking of entire congregations, will accumulate for themselves as churches, teachers, according and according to their own desires or lusts. You have a picture here of congregations making decisions as to the kind of preachers they want. See, they don't first go and listen to the preacher and decide whether or not they like him. The thrust of this verse is they first decide what they want to hear, and then they go and choose a preacher who will give them what they want to hear. So if the people want to, do, to worship a golden calf, then they'll get themselves a golden calf preacher. And so much in our day, the pulpit has just become a sounding board reflecting back what it is that the people want to hear, not what it is that they need to hear. And so the man of God very often today is rejected while the religious entertainer has growing numbers in so-called conversions. And what we've done today is displeasing to God. People are looking for men who will just tell them what they want. So, Timothy, you're to be different. But you, Timothy, you must be different. Preach the Word of God because men will not want to hear the truth. They'll want their ears tickled. Preach the Word of God because they'll choose bad teachers, teachers in accordance to their own desires. Preach the Word of God, third, because men will embrace myths. Look at verse 4. Men will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now notice the repetition of the word ears here found within two verses. I have them both circled in my Bible. He moves from tickling ears now basically to stopped ears. People who have stopped their ears, they say, I don't want to hear it. People like that who come here on Sunday, <laughs> they think, man, broke I don't want to hear it. I don't like, he doesn't make me feel good when I come. Now, there may be times when you come and you feel good, but listen, the Bible is not all roses and walking through the tulips. Sometimes there's some thorns we got to walk through and some hard truths that we need to present. So they stop their ears to sound Bible teaching, and they open their ears to people who relieve it with a tickle. Now, I want to tell you, it's a short step from stopping your ears to truth and opening your heart to myths man-made fables that will not convict people of sin or make them want to repent. Now, the devil is so clever and so subtle. 
He knew that he could not get evangelicals to question the inerrancy of the Bible. So he has gotten the evangelical church in America to question, in essence, the sufficiency of the Bible. And so what happens is in this new seeker-sensitive movement, we are seeing entire congregations weakened. And while the short-term results are impressive, the long-term results will be horrible. Because what will happen, history repeats itself, what will happen is before long, you will have doctrinally weak people, you'll have many people who are just professing Christians, but who are really not truly, genuinely born again. And when you have congregations that are weak like that, it opens the door to all kinds of falsity. And that's why good, solid churches can go liberal. That's why good, solid, straight denominations can basically depart from the truth. Now, understand that most cultists actually at one time were church members. Um, for a moment here, look at this word here, myth, in verse 4. It's fables in the old King James. The Greek word is muthos. We get our word directly from it. And it was used in both biblical and classical literature of a manufactured story that had no basis of fact whatsoever. And if you know Greek and Roman history, you know that they had a history filled with mythological stories of these false gods whom they worshipped, whom they basically explained all of life with. But we have myths in our day. For instance, we have the Mormon myth. We have this angel Moroni. Sounds like moron to me. But this angel Moroni came to Joseph Smith and told him about these secret tablets in the ground and gave him these supernatural spectacles that he could put on so he could read this form of hieroglyphics and interpret it. And thus, the Book of Mormon. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, she said, God spoke to me and revealed to me that all sickness is just a problem in the mind. That mind over matter, mind over sickness can change anything. Ann Lee, the founder of the Shakers, said it was revealed to her that she was a reincarnation of Jesus Christ. A form of godliness, but they have rejected its power. This week, um, I read an article in the paper. Actually, I didn't read it in the paper. My wife emailed it to me. Uh, sometimes she'll clip articles or give me notes, and they'll just sit on my desk, and I won't read them. And so now she's got a new strategy. She emails them to me. And sometimes she does it under the guise of a love letter, you know. And in either case, I opened this one up, and, and there was an article in there. And it was uh, about a new television show that NBC has just come out with this fall, starring a fellow named Carlson, uh, Carson Cressley, and it's called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. And these are five homosexual men. And what was so grievous, what was so grievous was to read in the article of little boys asking for their autographs. Boy, I hope you've got a guard and governor on your television at your home. If you're letting your children watch these kinds of films, you know what the devil's doing? He's just breaking down the next generation further. He's just making this kind of behavior, this kind of perversion, totally acceptable. And the star of the show, and this really got me, he said the last sentence of the article, and I quote, we are doing the work of the Lord. I'm here to be his servant. A form of godliness, but they have denied its power thereof. Understand, it's not simply out there somewhere. It's right here in our own county. And a recent controversy that has come to the Episcopal Church through the ordination of the Reverend Gene Robinson, the first openly gay bishop, the Buford Gazette ran an article getting various pastors' responses. The Reverend Richard Lindsay, 
the senior pastor of All Saints Episcopal Church on Hilton Head, he said he was happy about the decision because he called homosexuality, quote, the last taboo. He said, and I quote, for the first time in a long time, I'm not fearful of what I believe. I'm pretty proud of the Episcopal Church. I'm proud of our history. I'm proud of who we are. See, that's belief founded not in Scripture, but in math. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM8, How to Live in Difficult Days. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl brings this message to all pastors to its conclusion. So if you know a pastor, encourage them to tune in. That's tomorrow as we search the scriptures.